You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Be seated. Uh, hello, friends on Zoom. Good to see you guys as well. I am Bill White. I'm one of the co-pastors of City Church of Long Beach, where we are a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. And we're glad to be in air conditioning this morning. Um, if it shuts off, the little off on button is over here. Feel free to turn it back on. It's on a timer and sometimes that happens. So um, we love to pray for our kiddos. So I'm going to pray for our kids before we send those uh, little folks out. And just uh, uh, parents or whoever caregivers brought kids today, there's a little they're going to put on a little play for you afterwards. So at the end of the service, you want to scoot out immediately so you can enjoy the uh, production. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, thanks for the kids. Thanks for the kids here at Lafayette and here in our neighborhood in Wrigley and in Long Beach and the surrounding cities, uh, kids of our church. Pray you would create a, use us, uh, use them to create a more just world uh, for all children. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Kiddos, you are more than welcome to head out with your fearless leaders. And welcome, Brenna Rubio. Hi. Hi, friends. Good to see you this morning. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful for that AC. I was grateful for the shade outside as we were all gathering and talking, chatting. Um, yeah, and hi, hi, friends on Zoom as well. Um, we're going to start out this morning thinking about banned books. Anybody? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that got a reaction <laughs> immediately. Right? That's been a big conversation lately, right? I mean, so many news stories coming out. And I mean, we are in a record breaking era. The American Library Association has reported that in 2022, so this past year where they had full records, there were 1,269 demands to restrict or ban books or other materials in schools and libraries. And that was up from 156 demands in 2020. Almost 10, yeah, <laughs> almost 10 times higher, right? There is this, this impulse, and uh, one author describes it as the lust to suppress that we battle as a society. And, and on the one hand, to be clear, it comes from all sides of the political spectrum and ideological spectrums, right? All of us have these, these ways that we might, oh, I, I don't like that opinion. I'm not sure it belongs in this space, Ugh, right? Because these are impulses towards just, we want to we wanna control, and sometimes we have really, there's some good motivations mixed with some twisted motivations all around fear and the desire to control. But that said, while all of us can operate in these ways, the reality is right now there are clear trends. It's not just like a particular book that some local community is going like, oh, this feels like there's a little too much sexual content or a little too much violence and this isn't, it's not that. It's whole genres of books that are getting this, this treatment and this, this outrage and this, this lust to suppress. And we know the two particular areas, right? Just LGBTQ issues and race. Those are the two main themes. 
And so we look and we watch and we go, oh, this is, this is dangerous. And we realize that the people who are working to ban the books, they think it's dangerous too. That there is, there is something revolutionary in these works, right? That could change society in ways that, that they fear. Well, I think this is an interesting conversation, partly because what we are reading this morning together here in this space has also been a banned book. <laughs> it has. I don't know if you know this, but well, not necessarily the entirety of the Bible, but large portions of it have been banned throughout history because it's too dangerous. It invites revolution. It might make some people think like that God cares about them. God sees them. God would be on their side, would rescue them from oppression. There's a copy of what's known as the Slave Bible, published in 1807 and distributed by British colonizers in the Caribbean. And in that Slave Bible, this officially sanctioned version of scripture, where whole portions had been wiped out, most of the Old Testament is missing, like just gone. And only about half of the New Testament remains. A lot of Paul. A lot of Paul. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I wonder why some of us have issues with Paul. Yeah, yeah, you know, but actually not all of Paul. I mean, they're pretty good. Like, you might want to preach multiple times of the year on servants, be obedient, obedient to them who are your masters. That's a good one if, if you're coming from a particular perspective. On the other hand, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, that's dangerous stuff. You better cut that out. That definitely makes the banned book list. The story we'll read this morning, most of the book of Exodus, in fact, is gone. On the other hand, the enslavement of Joseph in the book of Genesis, hey, God did good stuff through that, you know, right? We'll keep that. It's, it's truly distressing, but it's also, it reveals something, doesn't it? Esau McCauley, who wrote a wonderful book called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And despite the length of that title, it's, it's a wonderful book that like, is, is not quite as academic as it sounds. It's actually really, really good. Um, Reading While Black, Esau McCauley, if anybody wants to add to their list. But he says this, slave master's fear of the Bible must bear some indirect testimony to what the slave masters thought it said. They knew. They knew what God was saying to them in that text. They knew, and they didn't want to hear it. So they just cut it out. In the American church today, we don't necessarily cut out the book of Exodus so often. But for a lot of us, if we've read it before, if it's been read to us in churches, it's been read really weakly. And different perspectives, views, themes have been cut out. Themes of structural violence, community liberation. 
we ask it to comfort us and not challenge us. And so today, we're preaching a sermon that frankly, I've, it was never preached to me. And I know it was never preached to a lot of us, where we're actually going to allow the text to be what it is, to not just comfort us, but challenge us as well, to really read it for the liberation that it was intended to show. So would you welcome up with me our friend Liz Roy, who's going to read scripture for us this morning. <laughs> and while Liz is coming up, I want to let you guys know, speaking of liberation, um, Liz is starting, sorry, is uh, starting a new group uh, all about liberation from addiction. Yeah through Christ. And so if any that, yeah, it's awesome. And so all the details are in the digital handout, but this is Liz when you read that, Liz who is starting our new uh, recovery group. So, so excited about that. Hey friends, would you, if you're able and willing, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Exodus 15 verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks, Liz. Um, so for some of us, this is a brand new story. And for some of us, this is a story we've heard a lot of times. Um, so I'm going to do a brief overview of kind of where we are um, as we think about this story that is uh, can be thought of differently than the way I ever heard it, shall we say. Um, so they're about... So, so this is the end of the story um, where uh, Miriam is singing and the women are, are dancing. There's been a great celebration. The people who have been enslaved, the people of Israel, have been brought out of slavery, right? They are psyched. They are entering into a new land. God has come through for them, and it's just awesome, right? Egypt, the, the superpower of the day, does not win. The little people win the oppressed minority. Um, but getting to this point, so the, the 10 chapters before this, uh, the, the 10 chapters before this is, it's long, and it's kind of painful to read. Uh, there's a lot of negotiations, a lot of political in and outs, and uh, there are a bunch of natural disasters that occur, and uh, there are treaties and broken treaties and lies and all this stuff, and, and you kind of get tired of it. In some ways, I think that's the point of it. Is that maybe why you skipped over those sections to this part of the story? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, well, you notice we didn't preach on those. Last week, we were back in chapter 4, and now we're up in chapter 15. We kind of skipped those. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there's just so much. And I think part of the point of it is to remind us the reason it's so long is that the journey to freedom, the journey to liberation, it's long, 
and it's painful. And a lot of times you have to go back. A lot of times you, you make some progress and then it falls through. Mm -hmm. And consistently, the people who are in power don't actually do what they say they're going to do. They don't fulfill their promises. Uh, so Moses stands up back at the beginning of this 10 chapters and says to Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, yes, no, maybe later, all these things, right? And then you have these 10 chapters unfold before we get to where we are today. And I want to, I've done some deep work in the, in the Hebrew. <laughs> and I've, I've discerned in the text some things there that, that Pharaoh said that a lot of us have not heard. But they're, they're there. You just have to look for them. They actually are there. Although these might be slight slightly updated versions of what Pharaoh said. And I think you can help me. So I'm gonna, there's gonna be a little bit of crowdsourcing here in a moment. But these are some of the things that Pharaoh says in those 10 chapters of years of negotiations and failed progress towards this prize of, of justice. Pharaoh says, if you just wait a little longer, it'll get better. <laughs> Pharaoh says, um, you know what, we'll just be separate, but equal. Mm. Pharaoh says things like, you know, when I look at you, Moses, I don't see color. Uh, Pharaoh says, you know, the way you speak Egyptian, like, wow, your Egyptian is so good. <laughs> huh. You're a credit to your race, Moses. He says, you know, if you just worked hard enough, I'm sure you could succeed. You know, if you just maybe learned our ways. Because what I'm really about is I just want to make Egypt great again. <laughs> and for years and years, this is what Pharaoh said. It's, it's there. Go back and read it if you can make it through it. But it's these subtext, the, maybe. Sub, subtext. Maybe it's subtext, but it's there. Yeah, but no, you have to learn the Hebrew. <laughs> See, people like me have the edge, right? Of course we do. Um, I'd be curious, are there, um, have you heard Pharaoh speaking to you? I mean, have you heard other things Pharaoh might have said uh, in, in your life or in your friends' lives that sound a little bit like um, the sorts of things that are going on in these 10 chapters? Mm -hmm. I'd be glad to, to crowdsource one or two things here. If anyone has anything they'd like to bring up, or you can put it in the chat. It's fine for you to be gay, but that's not me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fine for you to want your freedom, but I mean, that's, that's on you. That's not on me. I, yeah. I'm not going to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rod. Yeah. That's not what women do. That, that's not what um, women do. Yeah. Yeah, they don't preach. <laughs> I would never. Yeah. <laughs> Anna. Why are you making such a big deal of this? Just let it roll. Why no are you one, being so divisive? No one said that to you like in the last week, have they? 
Yes, I know, I know. Literally, no, don't even ask the story, it's too painful. Yeah, Hannah. <laughs> you, for our friends on Zoom, Moses says, Pharaoh says to Moses, you seem really upset right now. You should probably take some time to heal um, before you address this issue. You're so angry. Why are you so angry? Your tone of voice, Moses, it's very off-putting. Okay, all right, this is, this is what's going on, right? This is the story, and it's our story. Um, and we'll unpack what that means that it's our story here uh, in, in a moment a little bit more. But so that's, that goes on for chapters and chapters, throw in a bunch of natural disasters. Finally, Pharaoh is ready to let the people go. There's the Passover, um, huge, uh, huge feast day now uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, but where they uh, put blood over the lintel of their homes and the angel of death came. And I mean, it's a, it's a terrible scene where the firstborn of Egypt get killed. And then the Egyptians are like, fine, just go, just get out of there. Um, and as the story is, is told, there's a line where um, Moses is talking to the people and says, in the days to come when your child asks, what does this story mean? Say to them, with a mighty hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. After all that hard work, the years and, and many people dying, God finally brings them out. So it's happened. Liberation has happened. And it's time to celebrate uh, I feel like I need to note a little bit that we love scripture. We love scripture. I think scripture is sacred, holy. It helps us learn who God is, connect with God. But scripture is also really complicated. And, and people who pretend that it's not are not being honest with you. Um, so these verses that Liz read for us this morning, sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted, both, ho both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. This song is just, it's beautiful. It's this beautiful ancient celebration showing God's deliverance of the oppressed, his care for people who have experienced violence and oppression. But there's a bit of an irony in the text as well. Because this is actually the second telling of the song. We read this morning from Exodus chapter 15, starting at verse 19. Verses 19, 20, and 21. Three verses. Sharing the story of Miriam's song. Miriam leading out. Miriam and the women all follow. And they dance and they sing and they celebrate. There are 18 verses before that sharing about Moses's song of liberation, which are the same three verses, just taking up six times as much room. What, what are you saying about men? I, I mean, I don't know, man spreading. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's interesting, right? 
So this happens in scripture. It does that we see the same story told two, sometimes even three times over. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one version is right and one version is wrong, right? It, it can just be sort of like saying, hey, there are different perspectives on the same event, different narrators, sometimes different editors coming back and sharing the same event. I still can't help going, okay. And they decided to give 18 verses and three verses. What an interesting choice. Um, because in actuality, of course, we experience throughout the book of Exodus, Moses is given a primary place in the story, right? And his leadership. But there are other places throughout scripture really emphasizing the partnership that Moses experienced with his brother Aaron and also with his sister Miriam. Miriam, who is actually just an incredibly significant person in the scripture. She's really one of the most significant women in the whole of the Bible. She's not only Moses' older sister, but she's a leader. She's a prophet in her own right. Uh, as Will Gaffney, who, who is just an amazing Old Testament scholar, says, she's mentioned in more books than any other woman in the Bible. Uh, she's the only woman to have her whole life, her childhood, her adulthood, old age, death, burial. It's all recorded in the scriptures. And you know all those Marys in the Old Testament? The ones, oh, excuse me, yeah, the New Testament. Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary the Magdalene, all the Marys, right? Mary and Martha. Well, there's a reason they're all named Mary. It's in honor of Miriam. Miriam, the prophet who helped lead her people out of bondage. So Will Gaffney has an interesting, he says, okay, sometimes it's just when we see two different, different versions, right? It's just different perspectives. It's different editors. Sometimes it's actually, we think it could be possible that it's two slightly different events. So Will Gaffney talks often about this idea of holy imagination, that sometimes when we notice interesting, curious things we don't entirely understand in the scripture, God invites us in to imagine how we could explain it, what could have been happening. And so she takes the approach of imagining this, these are actually slightly different events. Here is what Will Gaffney suggests. She says, hey, we can imagine Moses begins the song, that's how we see it, right? That he's standing at the edge of the waters, leading the people in song, this great song of liberation. But Will Gaffney imagines that that's on the wrong side of the sea. It's on the dangerous side where the Egyptians are still coming in hot pursuit and the people are there singing and Moses is singing and the waters of the Red Sea have parted. There's a way through. It's a scary looking way, but there's a way through. They could escape and no one is moving. They're singing, but as scary as it is behind them, it looks pretty scary in front of them too. Until Miriam takes up the song and she takes her instrument and she takes her courage and she dances out between the waters and the women all begin to follow and they dance and they dance their way to freedom and all the people follow along behind. It's a beautiful imagination of what happened 
how Moses and Miriam may actually have worked in partnership. And it's a be beautiful way of sort of reclaiming a piece of the story that sort of feels like in the scripture, it got squished down a little bit, right? Got a little bit shoved to the side, Miriam's role. That the song about deliverance from oppression that's being sung, it's actually being led by someone who herself is doubly oppressed, held down not just because of the people group that she's part of, but also because of her gender. And when we read it that way, Miriam's role, I mean, is in itself revolutionary, is in itself leaning in to liberation. But I also just think this, these two different pictures, this picture of this fully embodied, fiercely joyful way of leading that Miriam demonstrated, it shows us a different picture of who God is, not proper and orderly, uh, tame or quiet, but really loud and exuberant, celebratory. Liberation is just flowing through every part of her being. And so to me, it makes me think this is a word of encouragement, not just for the women in the room, though I fully think we need it, but for all of us who have been in places where our strength has been overlooked, where our part of the story has been squished down a bit, or maybe we've just been told that we're too much. Our way of leading is too loud too exuberant, too embodied. It gives us a little bit of freedom to push back and to say, no, our way of leading, it's part of the Imago Dei too. It's a shade of the rainbow that we need if we're going to see God fully. Amen. Yep, that is beautiful. Um, so uh, Esau Macaulay, in that great book that she mentioned earlier, Reading While Black, uh, he, he talks about this idea that, that to understand Scripture best, um, we should go to the people who have experiences that are closest to the experiences of the people in the Bible. Okay? So if you're trying to understand women in the Bible, you'd actually do, women might actually do a better job understanding that than men, for example, right? Um, so he's talking about specifically, he talks about slavery and understanding uh, oppression. He, he articulates this idea that if we actually go to those who were enslaved and then consistently were oppressed afterwards, we would understand Exodus and God's deliverance of the people out of Egypt better than if we sit in our ivory towers, never having had that experience and try to mm -hmm. guess what it was like. Does that make sense? And so I want to just take a couple of moments and read just, just a couple of insights from a, a few key folks. There's a, a genre of literature called liberation theology, largely uh, written by black folks trying to rethink how we look at scripture. Okay, so uh, the, the first quote is not a, um, an actual liberation uh, theologian. It's more of a, uh, an activist and sort of one of the most significant authors of the 20th century, uh, James Baldwin. But it, he's kind of right, he's following in this tradition. And so he writes in The Fire Next Time, he writes, 
This is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them. That they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. So we listen in to those who are being destroyed. We say, well, help us understand what is God saying? How do we understand the Exodus? And then James Cone. I was told, don't read James Cone. You talk about book banning. Dangerous books. Dangerous. Well, he's not a Christian, right? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, of course, he's a pastor and he talks about Jesus all the time. And he loves Jesus and believes that Jesus saves, but he's not a Christian because he's a liberation theologian, theologian, right? So he's, <laughs> he's one of those people. Hey, could you turn the AC on again? I think yeah. it's starting to get a little, um, at least I'm getting hot. It may um, just be the lights, but yeah. I'm heating up. But right. so James Cone writes this. The gospel of liberation is bad news to all oppressors because they have defined their freedom in terms of the slavery of others. The gospel will, all, will always be an offense to the rich and the powerful because it is the death of their riches and power. I mean, he's talking just like Jesus. But you can understand why I was told not to read his stuff. I was told by people who had riches and power. And I find his stuff very unnerving. I'll just be honest with you. Because it's like, I think you're talking to me. But again, we're trying to listen in to those who understand the story the best. And these are the insights that come. And then Howard Thurman, who uh, in some ways was sort of a philosophical father to the civil rights movement, right? So uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he kept a copy of Thur Thurman's uh, book in his uh, coat pocket, and he took it with him everywhere. Um, but this is what he writes, because he's, he's trying to update, he says, it's not just about the exodus, it's not just about back then, let's make sure we, we frame this and understand who Jesus is, Jesus mm -hmm. our Savior, Jesus the one that we love the most. And he writes, Jesus was not a Roman citizen. He was not protected by the normal guarantees of citizenship that quiet sense of security which comes from knowing that you belong and the general climate of confidence which it inspires. Jesus was not an insider. Jesus was part of an oppressed minority, culturally, racially, religiously. He, he was an oppressed minority. And so we're, we're leaning in, we're learning, we're going, oh, I wasn't taught about Jesus that way. Uh, that's, that's not how I grew up learning about Jesus. I learned that Jesus was a personal savior for my personal sins. And he is. Jesus is the best. But he's so much more. 
my goodness, like my Jesus was like, you know, he, he, like he fit, he was so small, he like fit in that one slot you could put a credit card in, kind of. <laughs> you know, it's the capitalist Jesus. It's your ticket I mean, to heaven. What's that? So your ticket to heaven, right? Like, yeah, that's my, it. That's all you yes, need. yes, my ticket to heaven. I just get that punched, stick it in my wallet, I'm good to go. But what if I listened in to some other voices? Hmm. Hmm. And this is the invitation for us today. As we think about liberation, we think about the book of Exodus. What does scripture actually say? It's about this oppressed people who were enslaved, whom God delivered after a long and terrible process with much loss. And there was still so much work to be done. What if we listened in and we learned? And then what do we actually do when we learn, when we listen? How does it speak to us? Oh, you're coming back. (laughs) Uh, What do we actually, like, what does it call us to? You know, (laughs) some people are taught in seminary that this, Every scripture says only one thing, and their job as like a pastor, as a preacher, is to figure out what that one thing is and tell everybody that one thing. And we don't actually think that. The Bible, God, through scripture, says so many things to us. We're not actually here to tell you the one right thing. But it is dangerous if as we listen, we don't consider the position we're listening from. Dorothy Day, who's a really famous uh, activist, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, she had a motto, kind of her life's purpose, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. What if the scripture is actually meant to do that as well? And it might actually be telling us multiple things. It might be speaking one word to us where we are afflicted, and it may be some, saying something completely different in the areas of our comfort and our privilege. So I can't let you guys leave here today without learning about Disney princess theology, if you are not already aware of this. Does anybody know Disney princess theology? Oh, I'm so excited I get to teach you this. Oh, maybe a couple, okay, a couple nerds in the back. Yes, great. <laughs> Disney princess theology uh, is a term, a concept coined by an incredible woman named Erna Kim Hackett. And she says this, white Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman, the bad guys. They're the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For the citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when it is studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It's some very weak Bible work. Yeah. 
I'm clapping for Erna because, oh my goodness, Disney princess theology. When are we imagining ourselves to be the princess in the story when we're the bad guy? We're the person abusing our power. When are we Pharaoh? Having a hard heart towards justice. His response so often to Moses was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who are you to be talking to me and criticizing me? When do we resist accountability and correction, especially when it comes from people who are sort of lower in the pecking order than us, who have less power in a particular system? So this could be thinking of my husband, who's a school administrator. What is he going to do when a high schooler comes up and says, you can't talk to me that way? because he he's just moved from middle school and you should actually talk to high schoolers differently than you talk to middle schoolers right it's they're a little bit more advanced is he gonna gear up and fight back or is he gonna receive feedback and say oh you're right this is an area i'm gonna have to learn and grow because i want to show you respect i want to lead you forward are we going to listen are we going to be willing to be corrected. I think of a friend who uh, much of her life, I think a lot of her identity and certainly her faith was shaped by her experience as a queer woman of color, experiencing oppression. And yet she had another point in her life where all of a sudden she was hearing Jesus talk to her about her areas of privilege as a very educated person with a really good paying job. And all of a sudden, Jesus was asking her to look at a different set of questions about how she was using her power, how she was spending or giving her money, what schools she was sending her kids to. It's a different set of questions. Me as a parent, how do I hold that power? Am I willing to listen when my kid offers me correction, says their feelings have been hurt? What if you're a pastor? Someone like this who, you know, maybe you're, you're, you're sitting with a, at the point I was, I was an employee. This was back when Bill and I had first started working together and he was like the lead pastor. And I had decided I was done with him interrupting me. <laughs> and I meant to say it very, you know, professionally. And instead he did it in a conversation and I just roared at him, I'm not done yet. And he sat back and listened and later thanked me for letting him know he was being a jerk. <laughs> are we willing, are we willing to look at our places of power and where we might be Pharaoh in the story? Uh, and then we also, some of us, need to listen to this passage in a way of saying, I, I'm not Pharaoh. I, I'm experiencing Pharaoh, but I'm not Pharaoh. And we want to honor uh, this as well. Um, so Brenna, for example, in that story, she had to find her voice. Right? And it was hard because there was someone talking over her a lot. <laughs> right? But she found her voice. And that's, that's actually, you have a job. And it's really hard 
And I'm really sorry that I'm part of the problem. But the truth is, you got to do your job. You got to find your voice. And probably try it out with in, in safer places before you go in less safe places. Like Brenna now, she says all kinds of things. Like there's this group of, we're part of a, a, a kind of a big group of churches, right? A denomination. And, uh, you know, Brenna didn't start off just like blasting some of this stuff. I mean, it's, it's we've got a lot of issues, um, I will say. But now she does. <laughs> and it's great. But she, grew, you know, she built muscle, right? So you start, you start where you're at. And you learn how to build that muscle. I think of uh, Yvonne Printers. Wave your hand to the nice people. So Yvonne, <laughs> she started a group. Uh, for women of color who want to learn how to rest and do self-care in order to continue their work in the world of doing justice. Like, that's what we're talking about. That's the appropriate response to this text to say, hey, I'm going to, hey, I'm, well, for her, I'm going to lead, but for these women, like, we're going to gather, support each other, and go on this journey. Uh, Liz Roy, standing up here earlier, right? Uh, wherever you went, Liz. Um, leading, there she is, uh, you know, leading, leading this group uh, for people coming out of addiction or, you know, kind of recovery adjacent stuff, support. And, like, this is what it looks like. I, I don't know what it looks like for you. I, I'm trying to figure out what it looks like for me. But there's an invitation here. There's an invitation here for each of us.